I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. past two weeks we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes and we've seen the preacher, which in Hebrew is Koheleth. So if you hear me say Koheleth, it's just because I'm thinking of the Hebrew word for preacher or teacher. It's one who gathers people um, to teach them. So the ESV has teacher or preacher. Some uh, versions have teacher, um, but the preacher is wrestling with the meaning of his own existence. So this is a very deep book. It's a very, um, it could be taken as a morbid book at some points. Um, And that's why we need to read it in light of Christ. Because Ecclesiastes does not give us the whole story. Christ gives us the whole story. Nevertheless, we can, we can resonate with the, the just human experience that the book of Ecclesiastes brings us through as we place our full hope on Jesus Christ. So in chapter 1, we saw that life is not a crescendo. Many people are under the delusion, and I think most of us, most people just live under this delusion for most of their lives, that their life is building towards something great something amazing. And Koheleth, the preacher, says, no, life is a vapor. It's there in a, in a form that is, um, seems to be solid just for a second and then turns transparent and disappears. That's what life is like. It's not, it's not moving towards a crescendo. In fact, it's disappearing. It's fading. And the preacher bemoaned in chapter 1 that in all his toil, he is not going to leave any legacy, and in a matter of decades after his death, his name will probably be forgotten. Then in chapter 2, we saw that he, he makes peace with the fact that he's not going to leave a lasting le- legacy. So he asks himself, how can I enjoy life then? How do I actually enjoy the time that I do do have? And he goes on a quest for satisfaction. Um, And he he realizes this is a miserable quest as well. His search for knowledge, the intellectual life, leads only to vexation for him. Self-indulgence only led to emptiness for him. And he realizes even in labor, even in his hard work and toil, he's going to have to leave that all to someone else who may squander it in the end. So he concludes that the best and wisest thing to do is to appreciate what God has actually given to you rather than looking at what God hasn't given to you and being anxious about it. The preacher, he is, he is somebody who goes, he's conflicted. I think the preacher is conflicted. Many people, uh, many, some commentators want to make the preacher an orthodox theist, an orthodox Jew. I think what we have here is a conflicted man who is confessional. He never does lose, lose faith in God, it seems, 
but he is a, he is a doubter and his emotions and his psyche carry him to and fro in his experiences of life <clears throat> and so after concluding that there's nothing better for a person to, than to find enjoyment in what God has given to him, he then reflects again on life and the time in it, which leads him to great frustration. And that's where we are in chapter 3. If you'd read with me, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to re refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. But also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Um, not that every sermon needs to start with a story. But I'm just going to start this one with a story um, or an illustration about how I feel bad for my goldfish. Um, I feel bad for goldfish because we have this big, massive goldfish, and I've caught bass smaller than it. So, but the sad reality of its existence is that it lives in a small tank like a two-foot by one-foot tank of water. And he spends his days just going to and fro in this tank alone. I don't know what's happening in his mind. He must be very bored. Um, but if we put that goldfish in, in the, maybe not the ocean, because it is a freshwater fish, but if we put it in a lake, it would have so much room to live and move and have its being. But he's confined here to the dimensions of this small two-foot by one-foot tank. That is exactly, I think, how the preacher feels by time. I heard a great definition of time before a few years ago. The person said that time is the space between the eternities. The space between the, the eternities. And that is the dimension that's allotted to us. And the frustration for Koheleth is that our entire existence 
takes place within the boundaries of that space, that chronological space. Our lives are bound by this limitation of time, we, we, and we cannot branch out, we cannot grasp eternity, yet the frustrating part of all that is God has placed eternity in our hearts. That is a longing and awareness of it. Yet we're bound by time. This, this, is a, this is granted an abstract topic that we're dealing with today. It's very philosophical. But I think what this is going to show us is that it's going to show us where secular anxiety comes from. A proper sec secular anxiety. It's going to show us, I think, that anxiety comes from walking according to the light of our own eyes and experience rather than walking according to the light of God's revelation. The psalm says, in your light, we see light. Without God's light, we don't see light. And we are reduced to our own observational powers. And that kind of approach to knowledge is inevitably going to lead to frustration, anxiety, and despair if you're honest with yourself. And Koheleth is exceedingly honest with himself and with us. If you're not honest with yourself, you can just live in blissful ignorance and just be like somebody whistling in a graveyard, acting like these things will never actually happen to you. But the preacher wants us to, and he wants himself to understand ultimate things. He's not just happy with the day-to-day. -day. He wants to understand the bigger picture. So, I see two cycles in this passage. One cycle deals with the frustration of his time-bound limitations. The other cycle, beginning in verse 16, deals with the frustration of his epistemological grasp of reality. That is, his what he can grasp of reality by his eyes and his experience and his observation. So let's look at that first cycle. His frustration due to time-bound limitations. This poem, which is read, which is maybe one of the most famous parts of scripture, is sometimes read at funerals and in I heard it was even read at secular funerals before. The whole point, though, is not just to say a bunch of flowery, flowery, beautiful things about life. The point that the preacher is making about all these examples is that we cannot arrange the times. Rather, we're subject to the times. The seasons and the times dictate to us what is going to happen in life. There are 14 pairs of opposites in this poem, and they are representative for how our lives are dictated by time. He says there's a time to born and there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. That is to say, life has a beginning and life has a definite end. And 
the time you were allotted is the space that dash in between your birth date and your death date, which we see on tombstones. There's a time to plant and there's a pluck. There's a time to pluck up. That is, there is seed time when you will plant, and then there is a harvest time when you'll harvest. There is a time to kill and to heal. Very interestingly, I think Derek Hidner made this point, that a farmer will, when a small calf is young and hurts its leg on a fence, will care and tend for that calf when it's young to get it back up to health. But then, only a few years later, that same calf calf will be taken to the slaughterhouse. There is a time to kill and there is a time to heal. There is a time to break and to build. Houses need to be renovated. Sometimes you have to break them down almost, down to the bare bones and then rebuild them up. Um, there's a time to weep, laugh, mourn, and dance. Maybe, maybe you have been to a funeral one week and then the very next week or within the same week you've been to a wedding. Mourning and laughing and dancing and weeping all within the same week. There's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. Our children who are young and with us, we can embrace them we can teach them, we can be with them, we can walk with them. But when they go off to college, it, it is a time to refrain from embracing and to send them off into the world and be their own man and to be their own woman. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. During the time of Solomon, who I believe this is supposed to be, during the time of Solomon, um, the kings went out to war in spring. So there was a time for war. It was springtime. And these, all these examples, though, all, all these examples about life and death and what happens in between it are representative for the complex of your experiences in life. Um, and they taken together show how our entire experience of life takes place takes place and is actually dictated by the ebb and flow of time, the movement of time. Um, so we're not like cruise ships, big ocean liners going through the ocean, kind of charting our own course, making our way through the waves, no matter which way they flow, just charting a destination and getting there. That's not what life is like, he's saying. Rather, we're, gonna, we're like sailboats. We're small. And the wind is like time, and it is carrying us wherever it leads. So our life is dictated by time and the times and the seasons. We don't arrange the times. We're subject to them, he says. You don't actually plan time on your calendar. You plan what you're going to do in the time that you have. So the sun rises, the winter comes, children grow up, we grow older, tragedy strikes, 
Joy comes in the morning. We don't plan when to weep. We don't plan when to laugh. We don't plan when we are going to be born and when we're going to die. These things happen either in responses to or in virtue of the time that you're placed in. That, that's the boundaries allotted to you. So this leads to frustration for the preacher who is brutally honest with himself and with us. And he finds this reality suffocating. That though we're time-bound creatures, we live with a sense and a longing for eternity in our hearts. So, what gain has the worker from all his toil? Verse 9. I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He almost seems to be resigned, certainly frustrated. And he sees life as just busyness. And he says, God has made everything beautiful in his time. And he has put eternity into man's hearts yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The frustration is this. For a time-bound creature with eternity in your hearts. The frustration is, though we have this larger awareness of eternal realities, God has not allowed us to see the big picture or to grasp it or to experience eternity. We're time-bound. He knows there is a vast ocean like my goldfish. There is a vast ocean, but he is limited and relegated to the dimensions of this tank of time. Here's a great quote by a biblical scholar. He says, uh, the creator has made him, th- he made him a thinking being. And he wants to pass beyond his fragmentary knowledge and discern the fuller meaning of the whole pattern. But the creator will not let the creature be his equal. The finite human mind is unable to reach beyond the time and into the eternity to see as God does. So he can't reach beyond the time and into eternity. There may be a longing to see God's bigger picture and to see the truths that he confesses in concrete form, but he can't. So what does he conclude? That's his frustration, but he concludes that we are to accept this chronological frame and be happy with lesser goals in life than to just desire eternity all the time. He says, um, verse 12, I perceived that there is nothing better for us, for the man to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. This was the conclusion that he came up with last week, right? Contentment. And I think certainly we can give, we can agree that contentment is, is a good thing. It is a virtue for a Christian. And he's right. 
It will lead to great frustration and vexation if we spend our entire lives anxious about what we don't have or what we don't know. So he, instead of a, a, an embittered life, which Kohela certainly does live, and certainly there's a back and forth with him, but confessionally speaking, in his best moments, he confesses and he brings himself, himself to acknowledge that it is better to trade, it, trade in an embittered life for a joyful life of receiving God's gifts rather than trying to organize the world in your mind. Again, maybe, maybe, some of, maybe some of us in the congregation today really need to come to grips with the fact that we're not going to master a life, that there is always going to be an incompleteness whether emotionally or intellectually, on this side of eternity. And that's because you were created for much more. You were created for the kingdom of God. And there is always this longing for the kingdom. That's, a, that's why that great line from Augustine just rings so true that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That is true. Not only does he say contentment is the right way of life, but also living in reverence for God. He never loses God in the picture. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has already done it so that people fear before him. So, living in reverence for God. God's already set the times. He's already arranged reality the way it's going to be arranged. And you cannot add to it, even by your best efforts. You cannot add one span to your life, one very wise man said. So, he concludes that the antidote to this existential angst, that is, this feeling of anxiety as he stands before a solitary and cold universe who seems indifferent to his entire existence. The antidote to anxiety in the face of that is contentment and the fear of the Lord. Living under his authority and dependent upon him. Um, you know why children are frustrated? why Wesley and Elise and certainly your children are frustrated when we tell them they can't do something is because they have a li limited frame of reference, a limited, limited view with which to work. They don't actually see the bigger picture. Why can't they eat candy for breakfast? Why can't they just skip school and play? Why can't we buy the video, all the video game systems and just play that all day? It seems like a, an adequate thing to be doing. But children don't see, seem to see the bigger picture. And they don't understand our goals for them or for God for their life fully. 
And so us as parents have to help them see the bigger picture and their frustration would be abated if they chose to trust and obey. And our children, by God's grace, are learning to do that, to trust and obey. And that leads to a lot less anxiety about what one could have and to trust that they're superior as they guide, as we guide them in life, we actually have a longer view and a better view and a better goal for their lives. So in a sense, Kohelis' conclusion is that we should turn and become like children in the hands of God. And that's true. Trust his good hand as he has ordered our life accept this frame, though limited it may be. And that's an antidote to anxiety. And I think that preaches very well. That preaches very well. And I think Koheleth on this point is absolutely right. Nevertheless, he is a conflicted man. And so maybe before I even get into the next section, maybe you are a conflicted Christian as well. And in your best moments, oh, and if this is you, I have such a heart for you. In your best moments, you are filled with faith. In your best moments, there is a God in heaven. There is a hope of eternal life. There is a meaning in your labor. But then you're thrown back in to wondering about what does all this toil that I do me? Am I making an impact in the world at all? Um, who knows what happens beyond the grave? Is what I'm being taught by the preacher day in and day out, or Sunday in and Sunday out, is this true? Is this true revelation? And you, you can feel welling up in your heart anxiety and an existential angst wondering if you've perhaps missed the pieces of reality. Well, Koheleth does feel that way. He is conflicted in that sense. So this leads us to our second cycle. And this cycle deals with He's reflecting on his limitations of, of knowledge and experience. It doesn't actually give him what he's looking for. Um, so verse 16. We just saw him at his best moment. Here's him at his worst moments. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. And I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, 
and man has no advantage over the beasts. All is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in all his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This reality of a limited perspective places the preacher in a cloud of unknowing. And his internal dialogue shows us a man that is confessional and he holds on to God and injustice. At the same time, he is conflicted in heart because he does not always see God's justice and he certainly does not see what happens beyond the grave. So he is a very conflicted, embittered man. By the way, if this is truly Solomon, certainly we could see in the historical books a conflicted man who at best, who at best, after grievous sin, repented and wrote this book, or at worst, lost his soul. So, um, he is a conflicted in heart. And this, is, this paragraph here, the flow of thought, is kind of hard to trace. Um, but there are two sources of frustration, it seems. Number one, he can't perceive God's justice. He said he saw under the sun the place of justice, maybe even in the court of law where judgment should be handed down adequately. Even there was wickedness. There's perversion in high places. There's corruption in the world. This is a source of great frustration to him. And yet, yet, he will not let himself completely divorce his heart and mind from God. And he says, I said in my heart that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter. So confessionally, even though he, he bemoans the fact that justice seems to never be carried out adequately, he confesses that judgment will come at the appointed time. Secondly, he cannot see what happens beyond the grave. And he says in verse 19, For what happens to the children of man happens to the beasts. It's the same. All go to one place. One has no advantage over the other. And then he says something in verse 21 that you would not expect to find in canonized scripture. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of beast of the beast goes down into the earth? The last sentence, who can bring him to see what will be after him? He's saying we both die, the animal and the beast. He says, I know the stories about in Genesis, but look with your eyes and see. Our dog dies, we place him in the ground. 
our grandfather dies, and we place him in the ground. And both times what we see is a cold, unmoving, lifeless body. It seems like there's no advantage to being human. So this is where I think I've had to do a lot of thinking about um, biblical theology and where Koheleth is in his spirituality. Now, I've read many scholars who try to make the preacher an Orthodox Christian. And, you know, certainly the preacher's strategy is to save us from a life of meaninglessness, but certainly he is not an Orthodox Christian. He's writing before Christ, first of all. I see what we think, I think what we see here, rather, is a conflicted existentialist. Again, if this is Solomon, you could certainly, certainly see that. He's confessional in that he believes that God is sovereign overall, but he is conflicted because when he searches for answers from his own limited perspective, he ends up anxious, wondering if there is an afterlife at all. So, I want to think with you and give four diagnoses to his existential anxiety as a Christian. How would we diagnose a man who speaks like this? First, we see, I think that, by the way, this is where many secularists are today. This is where many Christians are today. And we can theologically diagnose them with, from what I'm seeing, four solid, tried and true answers. Number one, I think we see that the preacher in this passage adopts a limited approach to knowledge. That is, his frustration is due to the fact that he's actually groping for answers on what can be observed. He is not, he is leaning on his own understanding in this passage. One commentator said that the teacher draws from an autonomous, human-centered way of exploring such questions, dependent on human reason, observation, and experience alone, using them to examine the question of whether life is meaningless or meaningful. So he has a limited approach to knowledge. That is, he is an empiricist. Empiricism is the idea that the acquisition of knowledge about reality can only be attained by what I see or observe or experience in life. Look what he says in verse 10. I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man. What about verse 12? I perceived. Verse 14. I perceived. Verse 16. I saw under the sun. Where does he take counsel after seeing with his eyes and perceiving and going by experience? He takes counsel within his own heart. Verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous. 
He was right about that. Verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them so that they see they're just like beasts. The Hebrew there is very ambiguous. The ESV went with testing, but um, it seems like the Hebrew is more like God is showing them. So I think his, it, it, the internal dialogue betrays the fact that he is groping for meaning based on what he can see and observe. He is an empiricist, and that leads him to frustration because he cannot grasp eternity through the eyes, and he is absolutely right. The only way we have access to eternity as time-bound beings if is if somehow eternity entered into time and revealed itself. That's the only way. You're time-bound. The only way the fish can get out of the tank is if someone picks him up and puts him in the lake. The only way, likewise, that a, that a being, a creature bound by the limitations and dimensions of the time, the short time he has on earth. The only way he can grasp or acquire any knowledge or experience of reality is if something from the outside comes in and reveals something about this eternal realm. And that is one way you could characterize how the gospel began. That God himself, the eternal being, stepped into time through Jesus Christ. One astronaut, Russian astronaut, I'm told, when he was launched into outer space, looked around and said, I don't see God up here. Well, that is true. I'm sure he didn't see God up there. But do you, do you see the, empiric, the empiricist assumption? And, and granted, he was being facetious, but it, it just betrays this empiricism that if we don't see it, experience it day to day, then it cannot be real. But we walk by faith, not by sight. And I've said, as I've said before, faith is not opposed to logic because the logic does take hold of reality. It's opposed to sight because sight can only take hold of what is physical. Faith, however, takes hold of what is beyond, lies beyond what is physical. So, that's diagnosis one. He has a limited approach to knowledge that he shares with the four horsemen of the atheists as well as the regular secularists on the street. Second of all, he has limited revelation. He does have limited revelation. The preacher is operating within the revelation of the Old Testament prophets in the writings. And if you look in the scripture, the Old Testament, and even the prophets, the afterlife in many places is very shadowy and vague. 
What? Right, before the prophets even. That's why you can have Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection. And they followed the, they followed the Pentateuch. And they didn't believe in a resurrection. Perhaps no afterlife at all. And so he is operating within limited revelation. And he says, who, get this sentence, who, the last sentence of the chapter, who can bring him to see what will be after him? Who could do that? Is there a man, is there someone who could bring him to see what will be after him? There is one man who claimed that ability. And that's Jesus Christ. And he says, if I go and I do go, I go to prepare a place. There are many rooms in my father's house. And whoever looks upon me will be given eternal life. And that man, the God-man, stepped into time, down into Sheol, and went back again and charted the course for us. So I believe that we know more than Koheleth knew. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ. He had the prophets. This is, this is a basic facet of understanding how to put the Bible together. Walking by the light of the Old Testament prophets was walking by the light of God's revelation, but it was not the brightest revelation God can give. Walking by the prophets was like walking by the light of the moon. Walking by the light of Christ is like walking by the light of the sun. Once the sun is risen, you don't need the moon any longer. You can walk by the light of Christ. So Hebrews 1 says, Long ago... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he declared heir of all things. So Christ made promises, by the way. So the answer to who can bring him to see what will be after him, there is one man. And he promised that exact thing. Understand this about our faith. When we say the faith or faith, what we're primarily or what I am primarily talking about when I talk about the faith, I am talking about trusting a person, Jesus Christ. We are not ultimately talking about a set of propositions, although we do believe them. What we are talking about and why we're here today is because Christ made promises. And then he rose again. And if a man rises again, you should listen to that man. So where are you today with regard to Christ? Are you, are you leaning and resting on Christ and his promises? Or does your anxiety and your limited view of reality consistently throw you? into states of anxious fits. See, you could choose to exist anxiously, or you could choose to exist trusting in Christ's promises. Great illustration from Don Carson. He talked about um, 
I know we've said that, told you this one before, too, but two Jews outside of their doors the night before the angel of death comes through Egypt. And they both have smeared the blood on the doorpost. They both applied the blood to the doorpost. One of them is very confident and one of them is very anxious. And the very confident one says, are you looking forward to tonight? The angel of death is going to come and release us from bondage. And the anxious man says, I, what is happening here? I've seen plagues. I killed my, my best calf. I have blood on my doorpost. Who knows if the angel of death is going to come and kill me as well? This is very unpredictable, all of this. Which one is released from Egypt? Both are released from Egypt because both of them applied the blood. And that's what you need to know about Christ's promises. It doesn't... Christ's promises do not rely on the intensity, ultimately, of your faith. It relies on the presence of your faith. That said, why go through life anxiously? Why not just trust Christ's promises? He made them. He rose from the dead. So here, here's, here's the thing. We can exist in a state. You have a choice. We can exist in a state of existential despair, and certainly you will be tempted to be thrown into this sometimes. Or you can exist in a, in a state of trusting the man who showed you what will come after you, the God-man. Last thing, last diagnosis, is that he has a... So the third one was that he had a, we have a bigger picture of reality. But the fourth diagnosis is he has a limited conclusion. And this has always annoyed me about this sentence. He says in verse 11, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so he says, so be content. That's not enough for me to just be content. Because that, as we read in the New Testament, is not precisely what the Apostle Paul says. And I don't have the reference. But he says, see, I've talked to, I, I have friends I play basketball with. And I, I talk to these <clears throat> friends and they just sometimes will, will get into it. And they'll just say, well, when you die, you die. The point is just to enjoy life. One of the slogans of a friend of mine is, it's not the destination, it's the journey. We're very philosophical on the basketball court when we play. We will be debating uh, Plato and Aristotle, and then we'll get into a three-on-three like, -three basketball game. It's a very joyous occasion. But it's not, it's not the journey, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Well, listen, the Apostle Paul says to those who seek immortality, he gives eternal life. If you look 
at and seek immortality in Jesus Christ. He will give eternal life. That's in Romans 1 or 2. If you don't want that immortality and you don't seek it in Jesus Christ, then he won't give it to you. So we cannot bend the will, but we can offer the gift of Christ. So, what do we do as time-bound creatures? First of all, understand that we don't have the bigger picture of reality. We don't have the bigger picture. So, become like a child and trust and depend on God's providential ordering of reality. Second of all, understand that what we have here is a man who is walking by the light of his own eyes and has limited revelation. But now that the sun has risen, we can walk confidently as in the day. Jesus Christ, as I said, made the promise of eternal life he has granted it to us. Trust and obey and lay, cast the anchor of your hope out into eternity. And he will meet you there. That, I think, is the antidote to existential frustration and anxiety. Kohelis is going to take us into a lot more. But I think we need to nail down the fact that we know better than he does. Although we experience a lot that he does, we know better than he does as Christians about God's ultimate plan. It's the bigger picture of reality that he doesn't see. You know what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1? There is a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Whether thrones or dominions, it's to unite all things in him. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says, I has not seen what God has prepared for them who love him, but these things are, have been revealed to us. See, on the, this side of the cross, and in light of Jesus Christ, we have the fullness of God's revelation. Trust it, cling to it. That is the antidote to a life of anxiety and depression and sadness. A life of trust and faith. There's a life of confident walking. Let's close in a word of prayer.